You're listening to the Country Chat Podcast with your host, Dom. Subscribe, give a five-star rating, and follow us on Twitter at country underscore chat. And stay up to date. Hi there, you're listening to the Country Chat Podcast with me, Dom. Today, I've got a fantastic Tennessean with me today. His name is Balen Leonard, and we all know him from Country Hits Radio. Hi, Balen. Hey, Dom. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. I, I'm, I'm, I mean, the sun is shining. You know, the weather's good. We're talking. What more could I want? Exactly. It's crazy to think Country Hits Radio has been going for a year now. I know. I know. It flew by. I mean, I remember watching on the Twitter page just a couple of weeks back, you know, when they did the... Um, when they brought back how it all started and they showed the video of you with a countdown clock and then it was like you introducing Country Hits, you, you know, UK. It's like, yes, this is it. This Country Hits really in the UK now. How has it all changed for you going from living in Bristol, Tennessee, to then living in London, working with like Chris Country in the past, which we'll talk about, and then ending up on uh, Country Hits Radio? Oh, that was a really exciting moment when that um, that moment when we, you know, went on air for the first time. There, there's not a lot of um, of moments in a radio presenter's life that you get to launch a new national station like that and be kind of the first person to talk and, and pick the very first song that you're going to play. Uh, so it was a great mixture of kind of nerves and excitement. And, and also, as you just said there, a real marker of kind of how far that country music has come in the UK, even in the time that I've been here. So I've lived in the UK for about 20 years now. And I know that there was a big peak for country music in the UK um, in the 70s and kind of 80s. And and then there's always been people that have loved it. But then certainly in the past kind of 10 years, I think we've all really noticed how that's grown and um, all the stuff that I did at Radio 2 and what a champion of country music they've been. And then Chris Country starting and um, getting to work with Chris and and um, grow that. And then something like Country Hits coming along. And then, you know, people such as yourself. Um, there's so many people that um, just have a love for country music. And um, it, it's great to be with like-minded people and find more of them and be together doing it. Yeah. Now you do the front porch, which on Country Hits, it's on a Sunday. And it used, you launched it really with Chris Country. It was actually on a station before Chris Country. Was it on before Chris? Who was that with then? Uh, it was a station called Amazing Radio, which was uh, an internet-only radio station, and and that probably I probably did that for a year before I started doing it on Chris Country, and that came about because I had I'd been doing radio pretty much for the whole time that I, I had been here yeah. um, on the BBC and BBC London, which I was on for like a decade. And then when that came to an end, I was um, the last thing that I was doing there. And the thing that I did a lot was with Danny Baker. So I was Danny Baker's kind of co-presenter. And when he left BBC London and I suddenly found myself without a job, uh, I just had to think about it. And I thought, well, what do I really want to do? And what do I really know about? And what is my passion? And it was country music. And so I decided, right, I just need to find a country music show. I just need to find a station that will let me play country music. And um, yeah, it was amazing radio. And they were quite, they knew me from listening to the Danny Baker show. And 
know, they were all about new music. So they were quite happy to uh, turn me loose. And it was a bit of a challenge because the whole thing of that station was it had to be new and unsigned artists. And so to find enough kind of quality <laughs> music in that ticked those boxes to, to fill a two hour show was a bit of a challenge. But one that I really enjoyed because I discovered so many artists that I probably wouldn't have discovered otherwise had I just been able to play Dolly Parton, for example. So yeah, yeah I started doing the front porch there and then went to Chris Country. And then when they were talking to me about joining Country Hits Radio, um, the one stipulation that I had was that I had to be able to also do the front porch. So yeah. the Monday through Friday show that I do is a bit more mainstream and, um, you know, it's, there's a playlist and all that sort of stuff. But the front porch on a Sunday, I I pick the entire playlist from start to finish and can play whatever I want. And I think that that is well, creatively for me, it's really important. But also, I think it's really important for the station as well, because as you know, country is so broad. Yes. Um, so to yes. be able to have a home for um, independent artists or for Americana or for old bluegrass or something like that in amongst the modern country, I think is really important. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing that kind of frustrates me with some radio stations is they'll just play the mainstream music. You know, what's, you know, the hits there, you know, the country pop that's just you know, it's the it's the biggest things out at the moment. Whereas what I enjoy about the front porch, what you do, and what I enjoy about Matt Spracklin's, you know, Country Hits Brits, is it brings in those smaller groups, the smaller, the lesser known people and gives them the platform to play on. It's fantastic what you do. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, I mean, that is, uh, it is it is important to play the mainstream pop country stuff because um, that is another way to get people into country music that yeah. think that they don't like it, you know? So if you are a pop fan or you like a particular kind of modern sound of, of music, country music also does that, but it also does other things, you know? It yeah. also has Americana in it. It also has bluegrass. It also, you know, some of the more older traditional stuff. So, and British artists, you know, have always been really important to me and, and um, kind of the shows that I've done and I've always made space for them. And it's great that, you know, as you mentioned there, we have a show with Matt that, that is just British artists. Um, and I think that all of those things together are important. You know, I do yeah. understand people's frustration about some country radio or hearing the same songs over and over again, but ultimately you're doing that because you're trying to build up um, an awareness and a yeah. familiarity for people that maybe don't listen to country music all the time, or that have just happened upon the station, or maybe they just listen for an hour a day. Yeah. So you want to give some stuff that people can recognize, but then you also want to kind of cover as much of the genre as you can. And it's a big genre, so it's quite oh, hard it's to do. Huge. I mean, that that's what I love about Country It's UK is the fact that it's just so diverse. I mean, look at Twinny now. You know, she's massive yeah. now. It's fantastic what, you know, what you guys are doing. I love it. Yeah, I mean, it's exciting because Twinny and, um, you know, there's only a handful at the moment, and obviously this will change because there's so much quality in UK country artists, but there's only a handful of UK country artists that um, are getting kind of the recognition or the level of airplay, yeah. not just on country hits, but anywhere. And that America is starting to take notice of, you know, there, yeah. we know that we have loads of great UK country artists, but there's only a few that are starting to punch through in America. And once they start punching through, then loads more can follow. 
Well, that's all it's about. Now, going back to when you lived in Tennessee. Yeah. What was the main catalyst for you to move to London? Like, what was the tipping point? Well, I mo- I first went to New York City. Yeah. So I moved to New York uh, to go to drama school, Ooh. actually. Yeah. So I moved when I was 18 to New York. And then I lived there for a while. And... Um, it was just a combination of things, really. Like, I loved living in New York City, but I had always wanted to live somewhere other than America. And I was at a point in my life where I was like, well, I could stay in New York or I could maybe move to L.A. because I knew I wanted to live in a city or I could just go see if I could live somewhere else for a little while. And yeah. when I moved to London, I didn't really have a game plan so much. I mean, you know, we're talking 20 years ago, so... It was a lot easier then to get a visa and, you know, come over and just try and figure things out. And I actually thought I might come over and go back to drama school. You know, I thought maybe I would do that. I I didn't really know. I just thought (laughs) I got a visa for a couple of years. And um, London just seemed like as good a place as any. I mean, I had a a love, as a lot of Americans do, um, with kind of British culture and British music and things like that. And um, speaking the same language to some degree um, yeah. meant that it was uh, an easier choice. And um, I just really love London. So I just moved over with not much of a game plan. And when I got here, I, I kind of fell into radio, to be honest with you. Like within the first, I guess it was the first couple of weeks that I lived here, I knew this guy that I'd known from New York, but he was uh, from London and he was back in London and he was a, a filmmaker um, and quite a successful one. Yeah. He made films for music. You know, he would he would film like, you know, Britney Spears in concert for, for her DVDs and stuff like that. Anyway, I was at a, a dinner party that he was having and the person next to me um, asked me what I did. And I said voiceovers because I did a fair amount of those in New York. And she was like, oh, my station is looking for an American voiceover. And it turns out her station was Radio 1. So... <laughs> My, my first job was doing um, voiceovers for Radio One for their breakfast show when Sarah Cox hosted it. Yeah. And after that, like kind of going into the radio station, I was just like, oh, I really like radio. This seems really exciting. And so I just kind of fell into it and then ended up at BBC London and stayed there for about 10 years. So how did it go from doing just voiceovers for you know BBC Radio One to then actually being a co-presenter? What was the kind of like steps for you then? Well, I was really gunk. I didn't know how the system worked. And I think that that's a real advantage sometimes because I wasn't intimidated because I didn't know that you were supposed to do this before you did that. You know, yeah. I was just kind of like, oh, I'm here. I can <laughs> I can do this. I'll give this a go. Um, and also probably something to do with kind of the American attitude in general. But um, I, I decided I wanted to do radio. And then I just kind of set about figuring out how I could do radio. So yeah. the first thing I did was I thought, well, I probably need to know how to actually do radio. So I took a night course to learn how to do all the technical stuff, you know, yeah. to drive the desk and all of that. And the guy that taught that night course um, was an engineer at BBC London. And I had met Amy LeMay, who is a fellow American and who was also on BBC London. Yeah. And through them, I, I, they hooked me up with a producer at BBC London. And back then you could just go in and do work experience. You didn't have to go through a whole kind of process that you do now. Yeah. And so they had me in to do work experience for a week 
And um, at the end of the week, I said to that producer, oh, I really like this. I'm going to come back next week. And I think she was a bit like, uh, okay. okay. <laughs> so I just kept showing up. And then, you know, they got to know me and trust me a bit more. And I would start making, I was put in charge of writing the script for the competition. Ooh. Like this was back when the BBC could do competitions. So I was put in charge of writing the script for the competition every day. And then eventually... I started making packages for the competition, meaning I would like voice yeah. what the competition was and put music under it. And I would say to them, you know, all right, I've written the script that's in the system, but I've also made you a package if you want to use it. And that is in the system as well. And then eventually they started using that. And then I start, I filled in for somebody who was a researcher when they were on holiday and slowly started kind of getting paid. And yeah. then but I was always really vocal about, oh, I want to be on air. Like, I, I don't want to be a producer. I want to be on air. And, um, you know, one thing led to another. And I started doing little slots um, about various things. And then one day I'd set up this interview and the reporter got ill. And it was literally an hour before and they sent me out to do this interview. And then one thing led to another. And I ended up doing every show, you know, I was... I did overnights. I was on breakfast for ages. I did drive time, ended up with Danny Baker um, where I stayed for a long time. And then the point is every now and again, they would let me do a country show. Yeah. So even though I was doing all of these phone-ins and various music and talk shows, yeah, I would always say, can I do a country show? Can I do a country show? <laughs> and they would never really let me. They just thought, oh, we already do, you know, every now and again we play Johnny Cash or Dolly Parton. Yeah. So we don't really need a whole country show. But when they do really need shows is when every other presenter is off. So bank holidays, over Christmas, over Easter, that's when they would let me do a country show. Yeah. So I would end up doing a country show like, you know, maybe three or four times a year. Um, but I was always trying to do country. So that's why when all of that kind of came to an end, I was like, right, I'm only going to do a country now. I'm going to find, I don't care where it is or how small a station it is. I just want to do a country show. And that's when I started doing a country <laughs> show on Amazing. And that's what really led to everything else. That's crazy. It just shows the true resilience you have. I mean, just to keep going and going and going and just turning. That's the main thing though, is just turning up. You know, if you're not there to it is. show your face, they don't know it who really you are. is. It's not even resilience though, you know, it's just like, you know, you just do, you're just trying to do anything. Like I, yeah. I, I just wanted to do anything and, and I didn't see it as, it, I mean, I basically I figured out I wanted to be on the radio and I somehow had to figure out how to make it work. Cause I knew that I didn't want to have to figure out something else <laughs> yeah. that I could do. You know, I didn't want to have to go back to, um, doing a job that I didn't want to do or whatever. So I, I don't even think it's so much as resilience as this, like I didn't really have any other skills no. and I, and, you know, arguably I don't really have very many radio skills <laughs> at all, but um, I'm at least persistent. You've kind of proven yourself over the past 20 years though, to say that you have got some skill. Well, I mean, if talking is a skill, you know, I, I, I'm not even great with grammar. So I think you're right. Like, it's just like showing up. And, but also showing up is super important. And um, I think finding something that you actually have a passion for yeah. as well, because, you know, I've got a real passion for 
country music. And there was a, a moment in my radio career early on where I, I just said yes to everything. Yeah. Um, a, because I wanted the experience, but B, because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So, you know, I would go in and review the papers and I would just whatever it was, you know, I, I, I covered theater for a while. I covered dance for a while. I, you know, I just needed to figure out what it was that I really wanted to do. Um, and it just happened to coincide with the moment when country music started becoming really big yeah. in the UK. So I think persistence is important, but also finding something that you're actually really excited to talk about or, or to discover or to share with people is also really important. Well, so country music kind of ticks that box for me. You mentioned a second ago how talking, you know, is talking really a skill? I think it is. I mean, just before we came on, you know, came on talking on this, I apologize for my accent. Now, for me to go on a radio show like yourself, you know, people need to be able to understand you. You know, I can understand you clearly whenever you're on the radio. Whenever, just just talking, like you mentioned grammar. I don't have the best grammar. I'm from the north of England, so I'm as common as muck. Um, but yeah, it's talking to me is a skill. You know, not anybody can just get behind a mic and just, ramble to the world and you prove that yeah i mean i suppose that's true but also you know you shouldn't worry about your accent i mean having a regional accent is really important and 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 i one of the things that i really love about british country music or country music from anywhere really that isn't necessarily from the place that you'd expect it is i love it when you can hear the accent yeah you know i love um i love the wandering hearts because they use british pronunciation um, I love it in the same way, you know, Lainey Wilson, you can hear her Southern accent really clearly. She doesn't iron that out. Um, and, you know, I get the irony of me saying that because my, my <laughs> accent is such a mongrel hodgepodge of all the places that I, I've lived and people never can seem to work out where I'm from. But I think that it's important to just kind of stay true to who you are you know so your accent is part of who you are and this kind of crazy mixed up accent that I have is actually (laughs) part of who I am as well so um I I think it's about embracing those things as opposed to trying to change them yeah you can almost say an accent or your voice is like a signature it's a audio signature for everybody well, I think it would be pretty hard to duplicate that. <laughs> That's for sure. Especially when you've got a Heinz 57 of an accent. Yeah, exactly. Although, you know, if I'm on the phone to my mom or I'm tired or angry or drunk, um, my Southern accent, you know, really comes roaring out. It's funny, whenever I'm back home, you know, which I obviously haven't been able to do, I, I was meant to be back home twice since this whole pandemic started and once coming up for CMA Fest, which is just around the corner or would be just around the corner. Uh, Whenever I'm back for any amount of time, um, my accent totally repatriates itself. (laughs) And and, and I, you know, sound like, but the thing is, I've never, there's only one time that I tried to change my accent. And it was when I was a kid. And well, I was probably early teens. And we got cable television for the first time, kind of came through my rural area. And that was the first time that I realized that people had accents where I was from. (laughs) Like I didn't, I'd only heard, I I guess I'd never noticed it on TV for some reason. But when I moved to New York, um, when I was 18, I was really aware that I sounded like a hillbilly, you know, um, 
And now I, I really embrace that. And I'm, I wear like the hillbilly badge, you know, with honor. Yeah. But at that time, you know, you're 18. I'd never been on a plane before, except when I got on it to move to New York. I'd obviously never been to New York before. And I was just suddenly aware that I was really different. You know, I was really yeah. Southern amongst all of these um, kids from all over the US, but I was one of the only ones that was Southern. And that was the only time that I thought, oh, I should try and change my accent, but that didn't last very long and it's pretty <laughs> difficult to get rid of, so. Well, that's good. I mean, it must've been strange walking around London when you first moved over and you talk to say, you go to the shop or you go to a cafe and you ask for a pint of milk and the people look at you like, where are you from? Uh, water was the one water, water catches Brits out in the U in the U S you know, they have to flatten the T out or they're not understood. And similarly, when I moved here asking for a glass of water was just an exercise in patience and uh, yeah, it was difficult. So I had to learn to say my T's. Um, yeah, it was also a time when I moved here that, and arguably we're in this time again at the moment where Americans weren't particularly embraced. You know, America, it's easy to forget that, um, you know, Americans think that it's all about America. Yeah. Not all Americans think this, but in general, I mean, that's just how we're raised, you know, and, and because it's such a massive country, not a lot of people around me anyway at that time. And this has changed now because of the internet and stuff, but there's not a real awareness of what the rest of the world thinks about America. Yeah. Um, so it was actually quite shocking to me that we weren't liked. And we weren't liked at that time because Bush was president, George W. Bush was president or had just been elected president. Yeah. And um, everything that was happening there and then 9-11 and kind of all of this sort of stuff. And it was a real weird time to be an American abroad. And um, it, yeah, it took a minute to readjust to that and, and you know, get, get more of a worldview around that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, now, obviously, with Trump and the things that are going on <laughs> there again. I think the difference, though, is that um, I don't think, I could be wrong about this, but I don't think people really blame all of America for Trump or for things that they disagree with about yeah. America because they realize that it's really divided in the same way that it's quite divided in the UK, you know, around Brexit or yes. um, all of the divisions that have happened around that. And when I first moved here, it didn't feel like people separated Americans from their president. Yeah. You know, um, whereas all now combined. people are just like, oh, God, poor you and Trump then it was just like, oh, Americans are awful. So <laughs> it was, um, it was a weird horrible. one. It was a weird one. It was weird when I moved over, but it took me a minute to adjust, you know, and there were times where I thought, oh, maybe I should pretend I'm Canadian. <laughs> Nobody hates Canadians. Everybody loves Canadians. They're so nice. That's why. I know. Um, so 9-11, obviously you lived in New <laughs> yeah. York. You lived in New York and then you obviously moved to London. How did it affect you, the whole... I know it affected the world in such a dramatic way. It was one of the worst periods in our lifetimes, really. Now, mm. did it affect well, you more? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'd only lived in... I hadn't lived in London quite a year 
when 9-11 happened. So, um, yeah, I felt really, really alone. And even though obviously everybody was going through this, but, yeah. you know, there was a moment for a good day or so where you, I couldn't get in contact with all of my friends in New York. And some of them worked down around there or could possibly have been down in that area. So that was worrying. And all I really wanted to do was go back. Yeah. Not move back. I didn't want to move back, but I wanted to be there yeah. with my friends as they were going through this crazy thing. Um, so yeah, it was it was very yeah. weird. It, it it made me it made me really homesick uh, because I think whenever there's moments of kind of uh, challenge or something awful happens to a place that you're really connected to my instinct anyway is to get back there as yeah. soon as I can because you want to, I don't know, you just want to be there, you, you know, in the same way that, yeah, I'd been in London long enough by seven, seven that I was a Londoner yeah. um, for the, for the London bombings. And um, I had just come off air for the breakfast show on BBC London. And like our final news bulletin was like, Oh, there's a fire in the, oh, wow. in the tube. Oh. And we came off air and then I went and had something to do in kind of central London. And yeah, that's when it became obvious what it was. And I went straight back to the studio. I wasn't on air, but I needed to be there. And yeah. uh, everybody did. Like everybody came running back to the studio. I remember I got to the, the studio and Vanessa Feltz was pulling up in her car. And um, she was like, I didn't know what else to do. I just came back. Um, and I was like, yeah, I just came back as well. And she's like, I, I just needed to be here. And I was like, yeah, I know I need to be here. And I remember I just went around, um, giving people sandwiches that yeah. were working all day. Um, cause you just want to be amongst your friends and the people that you care about or where you normally would be doing yeah. something like that. I mean, especially in crises like that, everybody has almost a role to play. So you've got all everybody who works yeah. in the newsroom, news desk kind of jobs. You know they're there to report to the rest of the country or rest of the world and let them know what is actually happening. And then obviously a lot of people don't think about that background staff. You know the people that go to help in dire needs. I mean whether you're just giving sandwiches or whether you was on air. You know it's all that same bracket. You're all helping each other. And like you say, you know it's you go there for the friends you need to it's that fight or flight feeling and we all go through it you know you either want to go there and either help or know that your family's safe or you want to kind of like reclude back and hide in a yeah. shell so well that that was also one of the moments that i really really fell in love with radio yeah. um during the london bombings because being back at bbc london who obviously the London station reporting on this, yes, international event, but certainly one that was affecting Londoners immediately. Yeah. Um, I just saw how important radio is. Now, I'm not comparing, obviously, me playing country music to something like that. But I think that that um, companionship of radio really came home that day. And of course, also yeah. informing people and, and keeping people abreast and, and trying to give safety guidance and kind of all of those things that were, yeah. was happening that day. But just seeing how important radio can be to people. And, um, and I think that, you know, even outside of that, just being, um, 
being a companion to people. Yeah, playing new music, absolutely giving a platform for artists to, um, you know, grow and um, making a fun show or all of those things, yes, are important. But I think that ultimately um, radio as companionship is super important. And I know it's super important to me as well from a listener standpoint, you know, having the radio on in the kitchen while I'm cooking, I can't imagine not um, (laughs) because, you know, it's just like – it's just what I do. So, and I think that that's actually different in the UK than it is in the US. I think in the US, radio doesn't play as an important role in the day-to-day lives of people as it does in the UK. Um, uh, I but know. I mean, I guess you know, different people look at it different ways. But I, I definitely feel like radio is more an ingrained kind of part of people's daily lives. Yeah. In a way that it isn't in the US. I mean, it's crazy when you look at the for the like, the American country music show, you know, you got Bobby Bones and he's mm-hmm. his syndicated radio show now is encompassing millions of people. So it, I can I can see that. But radio, in my opinion, I've I've worked in engineering jobs, I've worked in factory jobs, I've worked in almost every kind of job. And the one thing that is the same in every single building is you've always got your radio playing. Always. And whether it's BBC or Radio 2, I always used to put country hits on, especially last year. I, people used to hate me because I was really that only person that kind of enjoyed that country music side. So I, what, I, what I used to do is I used to play the odd country music song on my playlist every so often. And they're like, oh, this is quite yeah. nice. It's quite a poppy song, this. It's See, Antibella. that's good. You're making, making some country fans, making them realize that there's more to country than they think. I mean, it's like Lady Antebellum. When it comes to especially country music in the UK, especially not so much recently because it's grown so rapidly, but especially 10 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, it was always, like you mentioned earlier, your crossovers. You know, you had your Dolly Parton and Johnny mm. Cash, Glenn Campbell, you know, Kenny Rogers. That's that's what well, you got know. There's to- a lot of people that will know Need You Tonight by Lady Antebellum and not yeah. ever even think, think. A, maybe not know it's by a band called Lady Antebellum, and B, not even think it's a country song. Exactly. So, that, that used to be my favorite song to play to everybody was, you know, Need You Now, and people used to listen to it and just think, wow, this is actually, this is quite a catchy song. Oh, yeah, it's country music. Yeah. <gasps> what? Um, what? What kind of factory did you work in? I used to work in prosthetics. Right. So all types of prosthetics or a specific type? All types. Um, I don't know if I can say the company name, um, but we used to do orthotics, so like shoes, leg braces, and we used to do um, upper limb uh, prosthetics, so like your your basic plain hands. We had um, myoelectric hands, so all the fingers and digits used to move. Then we had like uh, slightly cheaper hands where you just got a basic pincer grip, and then we had like claws. And yeah, I used used to do it all, really. Well, that's a, that's a, I, cause I worked in a factory for a time as well. That's a much more exciting factory job that <laughs> you had. What did you do? I, had. I made, this was in Tennessee. So this was how I made money to move to New York. Yeah. Um, I, I worked in a drill bit factory, Ooh. but it was drill bits for coal mines cause coal mining is really big in Appalachia where I'm from. Yeah. And, uh, there was a coal, there was, it, it was a factory that had two, plants they called them but two buildings and one made kind of chemicals that were used on the um kind of roofs of coal mines to help them stop 
collapsing. So to strengthen the structure as you were kind of boring into the mountain. Um, mm-hmm. And the factory that I worked in made the drill bits to actually drill into yeah. the um, into the mountain. Yeah. So oh, I did that for, crazy. not for long. I did it for a whole summer. It was like the highest paying job in my hometown at the time. And I knew that I needed to make enough money to be able to go to New York Yeah. to go to the school that I'd been accepted to. And I knew that my family wasn't going to be able to afford it. So I took a job there and my dad worked in the same factory. He got me the job. Oh, wow. Well, sorry if I sound rude by asking this, but what kind of pay would you need to move to New York then? Is it cheaper to move to New York, say, from where you were than it is obviously from where we are now? Do you know, I don't know. Um, I I was thinking about this the other day because I found like um, I was moving something and found a box of photos from kind of New York at that time that I inexplicably moved with me to London. But um, I'm glad I did because it brought back a load of memories. But I was trying to think back like, what would my rent have been then? How much money would yeah. I, how much did it even cost to go to school? Like, because all of that stuff is so skewed now. Yeah. Because what would be completely unaffordable then now would be like an absolute bargain. I know. So I don't even remember how much money I had to save to go there, what my kind of rent was on, on the apartment once I got there. Um, but I was thinking about that cause I thought, Oh, I'd love to know. I'd love to find something that like had an amount on it yeah. because I just remember at the time, you know, it was just so unaffordable for my family that I was going to have to be the one to, to make the money, to make it happen. Um, I, I couldn't even, I mean, even looking back to how much I would have paid when I first moved to London, now would seem like an absolute bargain. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what, what, compared to what people are, what we're paying now. So when did Charlene, uh, when did Charlene come into play? Was it 14, 15? Oh, what, my cat? Yes, your cat. Oh, Charlene. She's asleep on the chair over by the window right now. Um, God, when did Charlene, I've had Charlene for like, I've had Charlene for about 15 or 16 years. Yeah. She's an old cat. Um, I adopted her when I lived in King's Cross in London. And this is before King's Cross was like a really cool place to live. Yeah. Um, it was still pretty scuzzy when I lived <laughs> there. Um, as a matter of fact, at, well, out one side of the flat was the canal, which is really lovely and has a lovely little houseboat community on it. But yeah. out of the other side of the flat, um, it was right across the street from a sex club. <laughs> so it was a little bit of everything in King's Cross at that time. But um, yeah, I adopted Charlene when I lived there. And then I, I did work this out recently because my vet was trying to work out how old she is because she's quite old now, uh, but still looks really young because she's so little. Yeah. Um, she's like, she was two years old when I got her and I got her like, yeah, about 15 years ago. So she's doing pretty well for a cat. She's doing fantastic. I mean, most dogs, yeah. you know, struggle to live to that age. I know, I know. I mean, you know, she's, she's, she, she's getting there. there. There's, you know, she's getting some old age issues, but so far, so good. Oh, bless. Did you she's have any, hanging in there. Do you have any pets in Tennessee? Oh, yeah. I mean, I had loads of dogs and loads <laughs> of cats. And my grandparents had a farm. So, you know, there was loads of pigs and chickens and cows, not pets so much. They were yeah. raised from family food. Um, but of course I connected with them and became a vegetarian for a while 
because I couldn't imagine eating the pigs that, you know, I'd watched grow up you see, that, <laughs> over the course of a year. That's one thing that always fascinates me. In, I don't know if fascinates a good word to use, but if I'm not a vegetarian, I eat meat. But I know for a fact, if I was to go into, say, a chicken factory and see mm. the process, I know for a fact yeah. I'd walk out a vegetarian. And it's such a bizarre concept. Yeah, I mean, a, a factory and factory farming is certainly something that is is pretty shocking all around. But, you know, my where I'm from and the way that my family worked and the way that loads of families work around there is that you you raised what your family needed to eat yeah. for that year. So my grandparents had a really big farm, but they would rent out a lot of the fields to farmers that would raise, you know, loads of heads of, of cattle or whatever it was but for my grandparents they would get like two pigs a year they would have a milk cow they would have some chickens for eggs and some to eat and a big garden and um, then the whole family would you know go through the process of slaughtering the pigs and all that stuff which was still horrible yeah um, but definitely a different situation than factory farming and then also I come from a big family of hunters as well um, but hunting literally to to eat it you know yeah, not not yeah. kind of not, not to spot. put on the wall not that they don't have loads of deer antlers on the walls of yeah. all of my relatives but you know they they would hunt for whatever was in season you know if it was deer season they would hunt and then the whole family pitched in and then everybody shares out the meat you know for yeah. the rest of the year it's the same with the pigs you know everybody would chip in for the kind of slaughtering and processing yeah. of the pig and then the whole family would share it out um and you know that i wish i'd appreciated that more when i was growing up like i yeah. could just be at my grandparents for dinner and my grandmother would send me out to the garden in the backyard to get some ears of corn and some tomatoes for dinner yeah. like that night i mean and now you know you go to a farmer's market and pay huge amounts of money for for food like that um but of course that was just how we lived so i yeah. never really thought about it then but what uh, that's a very that's a, that's a pretty great way to to kind of get your food um but i will say you know the pig slaughtering that's a lot to deal with and i did totally become a vegetarian <laughs> after one season of yeah that was uh, yeah can, but I also I told, you know i get it that's that's how it works i get it yeah i can i can imagine i mean Watching programs. I mean, in the UK, we don't you we don't have that same hunter feeder mentality because everything's no, no. everything's in the shops and you know the what the only thing that people used to hunt here, obviously now it's outlawed, is like fox hunting or badger culling, and that's the only kind of thing. Yeah, but you're not eating those exactly. Yeah, but you have a real farming community here, and a real you know farming is really important in the UK, and also there's that's also a way of life that's very much kind of um similar to yeah to a, a lot of the ways that that i grew up and people around where i'm from grew up so that's another thing that i don't really get when people are like oh country music can't come from the uk not that you have to be a farmer to to like country music or <laughs> yeah. even you don't even have to like country music if you are a farmer but the point is there's more um there's more similarities 
in terms of at least rural life yeah. in the UK and in the, the US than people think. It's just the accent's a little bit different. Well, Luke Bryan sings it perfectly well. What makes your country? That whole album well, exactly. is pretty much, you know, just saying anybody can love country, you know, whether you're from a city yeah. or whether you're from a farm. Yeah, and, you know, most people in cities weren't born there anyway. You know, a, lo- a lot of people moved to cities to kind of get out of their small town certainly in America. And I know that that's the case in London as well. Um, And when I lived in New York and started discovering that there were other people there that liked country music, it kind of blew my mind a little bit. You know, I remember Reba McIntyre playing at Radio City Music Hall, you know, which was just a crazy idea and coming on stage in a New York City yellow taxi cab. And then I saw Loretta Lynn, um, playing a a gig that was just filled with people that I would never have imagined would be Loretta Lynn fans. And of course now it makes total sense because I get it. But at the time I just equated Loretta Lynn with just like the countryest of the country. And so to go to this concert in the middle of New York city that was filled with like punks and rockabillies and, you know, people of all different kind of um, races and sexualities and, and classes. And I just thought, Oh my God, like, she appeals to so many people beyond like my mom, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. and it was just shocking. And um, I've told this story before, but the opening act for that Loretta Lynn concert was somebody that nobody had ever heard of before. And um, he did a really great show and people liked him. His name was Brad Paisley. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember, um, I think it was, was it Matt Spracklin who actually interviewed Brad when he came to the C2C um, a couple was it you? Oh, was it you? So I, can't, I remember watching the video and thinking, this is a good video. Brad Paisley back in the UK. When did he come? Well, I mean, I did, inter- I did interview Brad Paisley when he was, when he was back. Well, I've, I've interviewed him a couple of times, actually, for when he was over for C2C and then when he was over, what was it, last year, maybe? Yeah. Um, or year before playing, playing the O2. It's just because you're both a handsome guy, so I'll just get you mixed up, you and Matt. Yeah, we have very similar um, hair. <laughs> oh, very. Yeah, I can tell with your um, with your beard. You know, you got very similar beard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, what's what's it like then when you get to meet these artists like Dolly Parton, like Brad Paisley? Just what goes through your head? Like, it must you must have this like star factor, your eyes bigger than your belly kind of thing when you see them. I mean, I know I. Um, I don't actually, um, that's not to say I'm not excited to see them, but, but that's usually what it is, is that I'm excited. Like I'm usually excited to meet them and, um, just talk about them or talk about, um, also to talk a little bit about home is always nice. And I don't mean specifically like, let's talk about where I'm from in Tennessee. I mean, um, just talking about how they got to where they are. I always find that really interesting, you know, how they went. Because the the thing is, um, and not every country artist obviously is from the South. You can be from anywhere and be a country artist, but a lot of them are from the South. Yeah. And there's just so many people that I grew up that are exactly like them. So I'm always really interested in how they got from having their dream and growing up where they grew up to the success that they've found. And, you know, with Dolly Parton, I thought I would be really nervous. Um, 
because that's just like a bucket list goal, <laughs> you know, meeting her, let alone getting to sit down and spend a full hour with just her um, having a conversation. So I thought I would be really nervous, but um, I don't know if it was the jet lag because they flew me into St. Louis to interview her yeah. um, and, you know, landed, had a, had a night's sleep and woke up and did the interview, went to the concert that night and then flew back home. So oh. I don't know if it was the jet lag or just being overly excited, but um, I wasn't nervous. I was just so excited to be able to, and you know, she's literally from just down the road from where I grew up. So there's one thing about being from the South, but there's another thing about being from the Appalachian mountains. And then quite a specific thing about the area of the Appalachian mountains that we're from. And my mom was born in the same town that she was born in and it's just an hour down the road. And so I know that world and obviously she does like, like the back of our hands. So we were able to talk about things that, I mean, I just think no, no matter how much research somebody would do, unless you grew up there, um, there were just things that you just wouldn't know about. And, yeah. and, and she seemed to be really into that as well. Um, and she was seemed, you know, obviously being very professional, but also seemed just as interested in how I got from those mountains to London yeah. uh, as, as well. So um, I was more with Dolly, I was more worried that I was going to be disappointed Oh, and what I mean by that is because she's been such a huge part of um, of my life and of people's lives where I'm from. And she's such a representative of the Smoky Mountains and the Appalachia Mountains and Appalachia in general yeah. and East Tennessee. Um, and I just thought, oh, I hope that she is as great as I think she is. Yeah. Um, and you know that when 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 the mic is turned off, you know, she doesn't just become a different person. And you know what? She, she was exactly what, what you want her to be. She was amazing and generous and lovely. And it was great. I'm I'm sure. Is there a saying that you're never supposed to meet your stars because they'll always let you down because you can't in your head, you're always visualizing them to be this top tier. Yeah. Never meet your heroes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I've got, but meet Dolly Parton because she does not disappoint. Oh, I just, I'd love that. Dolly Parton is probably one of the biggest stars I'd love to meet, but you never know. One yeah, day. I mean, one of the few times that my mom was actually, you know, interested and understood what I did, <laughs> and that's not really? to say my mom's <laughs> not interested in my life, but you know, she, she, you know, I've I've done lots. I've been been through many incarnations, and she knows I do radio. But yeah. interviewing Dolly Parton, yeah, that she was impressed by. As she, your mother, this is as she praised you for like the move to New York and then moving to London and basically. No, she just wants me to move back to Tennessee. Would you ever move back to Tennessee? Um, I would like to spend more time in Tennessee. I don't, I don't have a desire to move back to Tennessee. Um, I love that I get to go to Tennessee, you know, four or so times a year usually for work. So, you know, going to Nashville or, or going to do something in Tennessee um, or covering the festival in my hometown. Um, yeah. And then I always combine it with seeing my family and my friends. And, you know, I take loads of obviously colleagues I take over, but also friends and, um, you know, people in my life that are now kind of know that 
yeah. know where I'm from and know the people there and my friends there that I grew up with. And um, there's a real connection there, which I love. So I love being able to go back and forth. Um, but no, I mean, I think that I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now if I lived in Tennessee, because there's a, in Tennessee, there's a million guys from Tennessee that are into country music. Yeah. Um, and in, in outside of Tennessee, outside of the U.S., there are less people from Tennessee that are into country music. So, um, you yeah. know, I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I lived there. See, the one thing I do enjoy, especially when you look at, like, country hits, is you've got, like, the Tyler Bentley show. Isn't he based in Nashville as well? And Yeah. You know, there's yeah. DJ Hish who keeps flying backwards and forwards, and there's just such a collective group of you all. It's it's such a great radio show. I, I, I love it. I've always been a big fan, you know, ever since the start of country hits and you know i'm a big fan of yourself and i just don't know where well, you get you. your energy from where do you get it because oh i'm tired all the time what do you I, I could use some more energy some more energy would be fantastic and i love a nap as well yeah um, i'm big i'm big on a nap um but uh I, I don't know i think that i don't know i don't know I, I i feel like i could use a bit more energy so i'm i'm glad that you think i have plenty I mean, you do your radio show from 10 to 1 on a weekday, and then you do your front porch on a Sunday, which is, you know, 1 to 3. And yep. then amongst all that, you, you're doing everything. I mean, you're the creative director of the Long Road Festival. Like, <laughs> yeah, that, did, takes, that takes quite a bit of time, yeah. Like, what, what, what is involved with being the creative director? Do you get to have this final say on acts that come in and... All of yeah. That. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's my, that's kind of uh, one of my main functions is actually booking the festival yeah. um, and, and, you know, getting all those artists on board, but also, I mean, I'll, you know, there also, there's a huge team of us that, that I work with that, that help in kind of every aspect of this. So I, I by no means could I put on a festival the size of the long road or for that matter, <laughs> any size festival um, without a, a great team, to work with but yeah I, I booked the the lineup um you know named it named it the long road um work really closely with how it looks and how it feels and you know who can um what type of you know things we want at the festival basically yeah. just kind of over it's so close <laughs> to me the long road because it's so um it's so just a lifestyle you know that that I want to bring kind of that whole vibe of where I'm from and and where country music is from and also its origins here in in the UK and yeah that side of things and also it's a it's a British festival so I don't want to try and make an American festival I want to honor kind of it being a, a British festival but celebrating country and Americana and roots music so um I mean none of it I mean, sometimes it, 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 it can seem a little bit like work, um, certainly when it's all piling in and we're getting really close to um, festival time. But in general, it's just really exciting to, it's really exciting to do a radio show. I love playing music every day. And it's really exciting to be a part of something like The Long Road, which yeah. is like this physical manifestation, you know, this actual kind of tangible thing that everybody can literally come together and celebrate country music so um 
I think it's just really exciting. I'm, I just feel really lucky that I get to be a part of any of that, you know, that I'm, anybody trusts me to be turned loose with <laughs> a bunch of music and a microphone and anybody trusts me to turn me loose in a field and um, let me book a festival and create one from scratch. So um, it's all pretty, you know, I can't complain about that because as I mentioned before, I've, I've had a lot of jobs that I really don't like um, <laughs> or that, I, you know, they served a purpose, but yeah. they wasn't, necessarily what I, you know yeah like um I, I don't want to work in a factory again um i have the utmost respect for people who do work like that and know that it's vitally important and um you know it's also grueling it also can be grueling work um i waited many tables in my day in new york city and made many a drinks as a bartender and you know, I've had a bunch of jobs. Um, so I just will never complain about having to fit radio shows and a festival into um, seven days a week. I'm fine with that. Yeah. I just want to add in one more. I think you should be writing a book sometime soon with the amount of work you've actually done and the life you've had. It's, you, you could fill a novel. Well, I mean, that, that would involve me having to brush up on my grammar skills and um, be, be a proper writer and writing, you know, I've done a fair, I've done a fair amount, I guess, of writing, uh, you know, short things for magazines or blogs or whatever. Um, I just don't think I have that skill set. I really admire people who, who can really bring words to life like that on the page and kind of command the language in that way. Um, and it takes me a really long time to write things, you know, I have yeah. to really think about it and, um, and really kind of, you know, just sit down and almost force myself to do it. So I, I think I'll just keep talking. Well, yeah, I can, I can get that. I mean, that's one thing I do enjoy about doing like a podcast, this kind of podcast is it's almost like having that novel, you know, we can go through the life, we can go through everything you've been through. I mean, bartending i mean i've done bartending in the past you know country pubs around from where i live here in york and it's it can be quite difficult and that's not even saying but it's what it's still, like in that's new for york. sure you know doing it in new york must be a heck of a lot harder because you i did love it though as well you know i loved i, I worked at some really great places in new york and in, in hell's kitchen mainly yeah which is where i lived for most of the time in new york and um you know, I had had a great time. You know, I was in my I was in my twenties, and you know, New Yorkers tip really well, so I made good money. I worked at some places that you know were really just like fun places to be in general. So yeah. I was quite happy to be. But yeah, I mean, bartending to like three a.m. <laughs> isn't always fun. Yeah, I know that feeling. And um, what's it like going from that tip culture in uh, New York City and America in general? to then move into London where it's almost not compulsory to tip, but you usually do. Cause in American is it more yeah. compulsory to tip? Oh yeah. It's compulsory to tip. If you, if you, if you don't tip, you are not getting service or another drink probably. Uh, yeah. It took me a while to adjust to that. It felt really wrong to order a, 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 when I first moved here. Uh, now it feels totally normal yeah. uh, to order to not tip at the pub. Um, but even tipping, I think more people are tipping now in the UK, certainly, than they were lately. But also, I think that ties into, I mean, I don't know that either system is completely correct, because 
on the one hand, in America, uh, the reason you get this kind of over the top sometimes customer service is because there's a tip culture. So yeah. you have to get good service or they're not going to get a tip. And we're here. Um, I think sometimes the service can be a bit lacking <laughs> because it doesn't matter because you're not tipping and they know you're not tipping. And But the good thing about that is that at least here people are getting paid an actual wage. Yes. You know, they're not relying on tips. Um, so I'm not sure where the middle ground there is really. It'd be difficult to kind of enforce that middle ground. You know, it's like yeah. it's, it must be difficult for especially those that are trying to have a living in like New York City or wherever in America learning off tips but then in the UK you know it's fair enough you can have a minimum wage job but if you're living in say London doing a bar job it's going to be a yeah. lot more difficult than working say an office job in London or yeah. working a bar job up here in York you know the money difference is so vast that here in the UK especially I'll tell you what I cannot get behind is um, a service charge automatically added that the server doesn't even get. Yeah, that, that frustrates that me. Absolutely outrageous. And I always ask, I always ask the, the server, do you get this service charge? And um, if they don't, then I have them take it off and I give them a tip in cash. Because if you tip them in cash, they can keep it. Yeah. Um, and even, you know, I, th I also think it's ridiculous that they don't, even if they do get those tips or they're shared out amongst the serving staff or whatever it is, if they have to wait to get that on their check, you know, their paycheck, I find that also annoying. They should be able to get those tips that they make every night in their pocket going home at the end of the night, because that's one of the things about being a, a waiter or a bartender is that you can go home or you could go home every night with a pocket full of cash. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm forever asking on checks and on bills, you know, do you get to keep this? And if yeah. you get to keep it, then that's fine. But if you don't, then I'm going to pay you cash. I mean, that's what, one of my other jobs as well, what I used to do is I used to help with the manager in one of the pubs here in one of the villages outside of York. And I used to help behind the bar and I used to make sure the tips were spread evenly because a lot of the people in the back, all the pot washers and all the people in oh, the yeah. restaurant that don't get a tip because they're not front of house. I mean, I yeah, used to that, sure that, that servers wouldn't be able to actually do their jobs if those people weren't doing theirs. Yeah, exactly. And I used to make sure it was put into the pint pots each night. And before they left, here you go. Here's your, here's your tip for today. Here's your tip for today. And they used to love it. I mean, it used to be the best part of the day, actually, for me, was actually handing out those tips, saying you've done a good job today. Well done. Oh yeah, we would always do that in New York as well. Like you would, you would give a percentage to the bartender because obviously they were making your drinks all night for your tables. You'd give a percentage to the bussers who were keeping your tables clean, and um, yeah, percentage to the back of house staff as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Now going back to the Long Road Festival, what was it like for you when that inevitable day came? You know, when you had to put out that video message to say, due to circumstances and people's safety we're going to have to either postpone it or move it to next year which is now moved to next year now isn't it yeah yeah it's next year 10th to the 12th of september 21 um i mean it was a bit well i mean it was awful obviously but also 
on the on the other hand, it wasn't awful because there was really no way around it. You know, yeah. I and the whole team, we were obviously looking really forward to the long road this year. And I was so excited to share the lineup that we had. And that had been in place for a while, but obviously we never got around to actually announcing the lineup um, because, you know, yeah, you know why. Um, <laughs> so to not be able to, and, you know, obviously we still haven't shared the full lineup because now things, you know, we're a year away and and things are evolving and um, some of the artists can do it and some of them aren't sure yet. And, uh, you know, we've released some of the names that are doing it, but but by no means have we released the full names and not even the the main stage headliners have we announced. So it'd been like this case of like waiting to see if we could do it or not. And, you know, I think that everybody in kind of every sector um, in kind of, when this all first really started kicking in, in kind of, you know, late February, March, everybody, I think, assumed that by the end of the year, things might be all right. And so there was a while where we just thought, well, maybe we can still go in September. Um, And then there was that balance of trying to figure out, well, how long do we wait to see if we can go in September? Yeah. And how much, like, cause I didn't want to take the piss and just string people along and wait till like, you know, August or something and see like, Oh, maybe we'll be able to go in September because people have to plan their lives out. And also it takes us a long time to build that festival as well. Um, so yeah, it just became really obvious that, um, even if we were able to go ahead, which, you know, now it looks like we definitely wouldn't have been able to go ahead. Yeah. Even had we been able to go ahead, we still weren't going to be able to kind of do it the way that people expected us to do it and the way that we wanted to do it. So I think it was, I mean, some people might've thought it was too soon to announce it. Some people might've thought it was too late to announce it. I mean, ultimately when you're doing that, you just have to weigh out what's best, you know, or what you think is best for everybody. And, um, I think hopefully we gave everybody enough notice. Um, we didn't string people along um, and just tried to be really honest with, with where it all sat. And um, now the concentration is just on delivering an amazing festival in 21. And I have to say, people were really great. People were super supportive, really lovely. Um, you know, people have been buying tickets, which is amazing. Yeah. Um, Every, everybody for the most part who had tickets already have, has stuck with us. So the the reception has been really, really great. And it, it's been really nice that people have been like that. I mean, I expected it to be like that because everybody obviously <laughs> yeah. knew the situation that everybody was in, but it's just really nice that it confirms that that country and Americana fans are actually really lovely people in general. Yeah. I mean, I don't like comparing say festivals, but you've done a, better job you know given that period of notice than say like the c2c where it was actually on that weekend where they just turn around and says you know what it's not safe we can't do it and then people have yeah but what an impossible situation i know for I them felt, to be in as well you I know felt so sorry um, for them yeah it's all just you know i mean ultimately we all are in the same boat in that we want country music to grow and grow and in the UK and for there to be loads of opportunities for fans and for artists. And um, yeah, it's just not a good situation for anybody. And, and, and ultimately everybody is dealing, even though it's the same thing, you know, we're all dealing with coronavirus. Everybody is dealing with their own individual 
things. And yeah, I mean, it all just happening on C2C weekend. I don't know what else they could have done, really. No, it's it's one of those impossible decisions because there wasn't there wasn't that much information coming from the government at the time, and then for the bosses there to actually say, you know, to then say no, I, it was a wise decision for them to do it when they did it. I mean, it could have people could argue it could have been done before. There's an argument for that, but then there's an argument that they've waited to the right time when they knew for certain that they could not do this safely. And the issue that we've got now, really, is there is no timeline what we can go on for anything. I mean... No, I know. How do we know when this virus has got... I mean, I don't like... I always end up talking about virus. Well, it's a big topic at the moment, so... it's, it's, It's critical at the moment in the UK and the world because of the death toll, the infection rates, and how it's affecting day-to-day lives. I mean, you're at home, you know, broadcasting yeah. on, you know, on air. What's it? It must be such a weird feeling for you waking up in the morning and then turning on your laptop, speaking to the world for, you know, three, four hours a day, and then I kind of love it. it off. I kind of love it. It's um, I've gotten, I mean, you know, obviously it took a moment to adjust to it, but I kind of love it. I mean, I do miss, obviously like so many people, I miss interacting, you know, with people face to face and um, in normal circumstances, there would have been a whole host of artists and bands that would have been coming through the studio by now that we would have been interviewing and hanging out with. So I miss that a little bit. I haven't jumped too much into the, kind of Zoom interview thing. I mean, I've done a few, um, Kane Brown and 20, and yeah. there's a few more on the way. But ultimately, I think that artists are doing that really well themselves at the moment. You know, like everybody's live streaming or, or broadcasting or Facebook living or, you know, whatever. Everybody's yeah. kind of doing that. So um, I don't feel like we've had to do that much of it just because all those artists are doing that already. So. Yeah. We'll probably do a little bit more of it just to check in with people. But um, ultimately, kind of, it's nice kind of waking up and doing it in my kitchen because Mm -hmm. that's the way a lot of people are listening at the moment as well. So it kind of feels like even more of a, you know, we're all kind of in this together type thing where I think it would feel a little bit. I I wouldn't feel removed from it so much um, because obviously... I would still be in a world with coronavirus. But, you know, if I was going into the studio every day and doing the show as normal, um, it would just feel... I feel like that would feel weirder yeah. than doing it in my kitchen because everybody's... You know, I know people are starting to return now to work and stuff, but certainly in the beginning, everybody was stuck at home. Yeah. So it would have felt... It would have, yeah, it would have felt weirder, I think, for me to continue to go into the studio to do it. Have you been given a like a timeline yet for when you, they're looking at bringing you back in, or have they just said stay as you are at the moment and we'll see? No, we we don't. I mean, everybody like everything is everybody's just trying to figure out, you know, <laughs> yeah, how 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 it keeps going. I mean, at the moment, um, I, I feel like it's working fine. It, you know, everybody feels like it's working fine with all of us broadcasting from home. The whole station is broadcasting from home, so everybody feels like that's working fine in terms of quality and, you know, you know, it's, it's working, it's working. So for, for us, there's no reason for us to rush back, um, 
and you know there there are other industries that are far more important um, in terms of people actually having to be somewhere to do their actual job. You know we're really lucky because we can do our job from home. Yeah, I mean I loved I loved the tweet that you put out the other day. What did it say? Um, I've got to the point of this lockdown where I'm vacuuming my small vacuum, my big vacuum. Oh yeah, I did. Like what happened? I literally did that. Well, I was, I was, you know, I was hoovering something and then I, cause you know, you have your little like handheld vac. Well, I don't know if you do, but yeah. you have a little handheld vac for this and that. And then you've got like the big old clunky vacuum that you have to drag out every now and again. Mm-hmm. And of course I hadn't done a big old clunky vacuum the entire lockdown. I'd just been using the like handheld thing. Um, and I emptied the handheld thing and then suddenly realized like I had the big vacuum out and I was like, wow, I can, <laughs> I can clean the air filter and like hoover out the inside of the small vacuum with the, and it was like, it was great. Like it, it works a treat now, that little one, it's got so much suction power. That's all it's about is that suction power. That's all it's about. That's all, that, that's the main, yeah, that's the main <laughs> thing. As it turns out, the main thing you're looking for in a vacuum. Yeah. yeah. You don't want a, um, a vacuum without suction. That's kind of a uh, pointless vacuum. That's a broom. <laughs> All right. Um, I think I have covered pretty much everything. Is there anything you want to add? No, I, I, I mean, I feel like I'm good. I feel like ending on, um, you know, vacuuming and household chores feels completely appropriate. Oh yeah. Oh, well, I'll, I've got a couple of questions that I normally ask towards the end as I roll out this interview. Um, but oh yeah. It's just some mundane questions, you know, just to get a bit more out of you. So okay. normally the way it rolls is particularly those that are over 18, it'll start on like a night out. So you'll start at the beginning okay. and it'll go around and it'll finish at the end. So okay. where do you like to go? Do you like to go to a pub or a bar or a club? I like all three of those things. So there, I live in central London and um, I have all of those things within stumbling distance of my flat. So my closest pub is two doors down. Um, So that's extremely convenient. (laughs) And then a a block away is kind of like a pub club. You know, it's like one of those is kind of like just a bar, but it also has dancing. Yeah. And then, um, you know, within kind of 10 minutes walk, one of the biggest kind of clubbing centers in London and Europe, um, Vauxhall is just down the road. Yeah. So there's less clubs in Vauxhall now than there used to be, but they still certainly exist. And, you know, for a long time, I kind of was worked in that scene um, a bit anyway, DJing. And I have a lot of friends who do a lot of kind of um, like performance art and live art. Yeah. And so... I would always be in some weird arch with somebody doing some crazy performance art thing or other. Um, it just depends. But I do have to say that I was thinking about this the other day. Um, for the past few years, I'm just so happy to have a night off because yeah. I, uh, which I love, I go to so many, in, we're talking in normal times. I go to so many gigs and kind of events, um, which is, is great that we have so many normally country gigs to go to that if I have like a Saturday night off, I'm so happy to not go out. Yeah. Now going to the pub club or bar, cause you chose all three. 
what kind of drinks God. what kind of, what kind of drinks do you go for when you go to each establishment well i mean you know if i'm in the mood for a pint then that's going to happen at the pub but in general i'm i'm kind of a bourbon guy so regardless of either of those whether i'm in any of those even if there it's even if beer is involved usually jack daniels or bourbon of some stripe and coke yeah. ends up being the the night long situation yeah i mean tequila i do like tequila as well tequila oh people always complain about really, tequila you know how they always feel really really rough but i don't i never really do i'm really good on tequila or i feel really good on tequila anyway i don't know i don't know if i am actually good but yeah but but in general bourbon like my go to drink no matter where i am what bourbon and coke what kind of bourbons do you have you know is it like a maker's mark or a Oh, I've got so many different types of bourbons. I've got so many different types of bourbons. Um, I mean, Jack Daniels is go-to. Jim Beam, obviously go-to. You know, um, Eagle Eagle Rare, um, Woodford, um, Bullet. You know, I'm not. I've been on a bourbon tour of Kentucky. um, Oh, really? Where I learned a lot about bourbon and forgot all of it because I drank a lot of bourbon <laughs> as well. They, they like every, like the second or third day of that bourbon tour, it started with a breakfast bourbon tasting. Oh wow. And then like all of the breakfast also had bourbon in it. So like the maple syrup for the pancakes was bourbon. You know, it, oh, there was a lot. That sounds amazing. It was pretty amazing, but it was also too much. I mean, I did come out of it thinking like, oh, I hope this doesn't ruin bourbon for me. But no, it didn't. It's all right. It's fine. That's the main thing. So what kind of pints would yeah. you have then? You've mentioned you'll drink a pint. Lager. I don't like ale. You don't like ale? I'm a lager guy. What kind of lagers? Just like Do you know what? Any, I, I'm, any, any lager. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm fine with a, a Cronenberg. I'm fine with a Red Stripe. I'm fine with Ooh, a, you know, stripe. I don't. Any kind of refreshing, clear-ish lager, and I'm good. Yeah. Now, going from the pub, you've had you've had your drinks. You go to get something to eat. Mm. What kind of food would you get from like a takeaway? Well, conveniently, right across from the pub is a kebab shop. Oh, perfect. So. Yeah, that's always great. But so, yeah, I would get, um, I mean, I do, I have to say, I miss that culture of New York. You know, 24-hour diners, I really miss. I know that we have a few dotted about, but not in general. It's not really a a thing, is it? Um, I miss being able to spill out of a club or a bar and into a diner and have, like, breakfast at three in the morning or, or a steak, you know, or whatever you wanted. So I do miss that element but but the kebab shop does but do you know what actually is a pretty good go-to um i always have (laughs) this i always have frozen pizzas in the uh, in the the freezer yeah because they are the perfect thing to pop in the oven when you get home a little bit drunk (laughs) takes like 10 minutes and then you've got a delicious frozen pizza so that's a great and i always need to eat before i go to bed if i've been out drinking Oh, you've got to line your stomach. You've got to reline your stomach and absorb that alcohol. That's the main thing. Yeah, absolutely. If you had the choice, then having a 
takeaway or going to a sit-in restaurant, say in London, what would you rather have? What, after drinking or just anytime? Anytime. Um, oh, I would prefer to sit down, yeah. What kind of places do you yeah. like to go? I mean, London's full of them. London is full of them, yeah. And uh, it'll be great when they can open back up again. Um, yeah, I mean, I like a pub that serves good food. That's always great. That's, that's like the best of both worlds, yeah. you know? Like you can sit, meet all your mates, um, and whether it's Sunday, you know, roast or a good old burger deal for lunch, you know, a pint and a burger, chips for 10 quid, perfect. Yeah. Um, which is probably outrageous in other parts of the country, but in London, that's quite a good, <laughs> that's quite a good really deal. Good. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Nothing too fancy pants. You know, you want something that's pretty casual and laid back. Um, and I eat pretty much everything. Like I'm not, well, frozen pizzas probably proves I'm not a snob about (laughs) food, but I mean, I do like really good food and I cook quite a lot as well. Um, but, um, you know, I like, I like a nice laid back place, you know, and music, like if it has a good playlist, you know, there's one, there's loads of pubs around me. But there's one that's not the closest one, but it's a little bit further away. And But they just have such a good playlist that it's yeah. just such a great place to hang out. And they also have really great food as well. So that's like the best of all worlds together. I mean, my favorite my favorite place I've had something to eat in London, well, there's two places. There was a pub, I think, on the just off the Thames, on not the South Bank, but towards the Shard. There's like a pub that's just nestled near a bridge. And it had the most amazing... Sunday Calvary. Uh, it's probably better than what I've had up here. Oh, uh, is it just by the Tate Modern? Yeah, I think so. Oh, I can't, yeah, I, can't I, I think the, I know the pub you're talking about. I can't remember the name. It was years ago since I've been there. And the I other, love a Carvery. The other place I like to go is Meat Mission. That's a fantastic. Oh yeah, it's fantastic. In Shoreditch, there. yeah. They they've got amazing yeah. burgers there. I mean, I do. I'm pretty. I am pretty partial to barbecue. Oh, can't be a good barbecue. I love barbecue, yeah. I mean, it's crazy how much the UK is leaning towards that American style of barbecue. Because up here in, in the north, in Manchester, Leeds, and other places up here, there's a place called Red's True Barbecue. And their mm. their meat is just amazing. I mean, their burnt ends and briskets and the burgers they do is just... Oh. Oh. Yeah. Um, always with coleslaw as well. Always coleslaw. coleslaw. Always coleslaw. Um, yeah, I'm really happy that barbecue is now a thing um, because it wasn't for a while. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I really want Mexican food to become a big thing as well. I know that we now have more Mexican restaurants in the UK. I mean, when I first moved here, I, I really struggled to find any sort of Mexican food. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's there on every corner in, in the States. So, um more Mexican food places, please. I mean, I used I used to go to San Antonio quite a lot in Texas, and the amount of Tex-Mex mm-hmm. food there is just out of this world. Especially when you're going yeah. going from like San Antonio down to Corpus Christi, and you go to these yeah. little little dive, not like a dive bar, but like a dive restaurant, and it's you you'd think it was a bit uncleanly, but the food there is just so good. Oh, that's where you get the best food. Yeah, exactly. It's like a greasy spoon here in the UK. Why were you in San Antonio so much? Uh, the company I used to work for had an office over there. Ah, okay, and I got you. The main technician over there was involved in a car accident, so he couldn't work. 
So they needed one of our UK team to go over and help. And I was that lucky person. And you were happy to do it. Excellent. I was one of the first ones to put my hand up. Yep, I'll go. Going from that then, you mentioned frozen pizzas. Yeah. What there's a, there's a bit of a debate on Twitter at times, and I think you might know where this is going. But pineapple on pizza. Mm. What's your thoughts? Well, I mean, first of all, I'm a really uh, I'm a classic pizza guy, so I'm happy with a margarita or pepperoni, mushrooms. But you know, I'm I'm a kind of one or two topping type of guy. Yeah. And I used to work many years ago as a waiter and a bartender at one of New York's like best and most authentic pizza restaurants called John's Pizzeria. Yeah. There's a couple of them all owned by an Italian family. They do it old school brick oven. You know, it's like proper New York pizza. And they refused <laughs> to have pineapple in you because they said it was absolutely not Italian and they refuse to even entertain the idea. So I've always kind of felt like that. Although I have eaten a slice of pizza with pineapple on it and I get it. I get like a, you know, I get salty and sweet go together, but I would never ever order it. Fair enough. That, that I'll go with that answer. I mean, I've always been a fan of it. I mean, I won't always have it, but I don't see the issue with it. Yeah, I mean, people have issues with lots of things that aren't very important, though, don't they? Yeah. Well, this next question is amongst one of them. Jaffa cake. Uh-oh. Is it a cake or a biscuit? It's delicious is what it is. You know, Jaffa cakes, I still remember the first time that I ever ate one because we didn't have, obviously, well, maybe we do now, but I'd never seen a Jaffa cake before. And it was like I first moved here and my neighbor who I became friendly with, we went to Tesco and she was like, oh, you've got to... You know, she made me get like coronation chicken and, you know, Brit- yeah. British things. So she's like, so you have to eat a Jaffa cake. And um, I remember like walking out of Tesco and opening it up and trying one while I was walking. And I almost blacked out because oh. it was such a like flavor and texture sensation that I wasn't prepared for. Yeah. Um, but if I had to say, is it a biscuit or if it's a cake? And it's an age old issue isn't it um i mean i would call it a biscuit a biscuit fair enough yeah because i i don't dunk cake in tea but i do (laughs) dunk biscuits in tea that is actually a very very valid point i've never really thought about that kind of argument to it i've always said it's a cake because it's sponge but i get that i mean i get that i do i do get where you're coming from and i think isn't it like for VAT or, or import or export or something, it's classified as one and not the other. I, I yeah. remember this is an issue. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm yeah, sure. I, I would have to go. I would keep. Yeah, I would keep it with the biscuits. I wouldn't put put it with like cakes if I had multiples of each to store. If you had to choose biscuits, then what kind of biscuits would you go for? Ginger nut. Ginger nuts. Yeah. And what would you dunk it in? Coffee or tea? Tea. Tea. Yeah, I do like, I mean, I, I like coffee. I, I only, I do drink coffee. I mean, every morning it's tea. You know, I never have coffee as the first thing yeah. in the morning, unless I'm in America. And then it's always coffee every morning. Coffee in America is always better. 
It always is. Yeah, a lot of people say that. Um, I think it's just, you know, that's a mental leap, <laughs> I think. I mean, but we, yeah, I'm a, we've started here. Tea every morning, coffee in America. That's how it works for me. Yeah, I get that. I mean, tea, what kind of tea would you drink? Is it like your posher Londoner tea? PG tips. PG tips. No, it's PG tips. Actually, that's a total lie. It's not PG tips at all. That is the first tea that I started drinking when I'm here, but it's Yorkshire. Good, 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 man. I love you. I love you for Sometimes that. Sometimes it's even Yorkshire hard water tea. Oh, do, do, <laughs> do you have hard water in London or is it soft water? I never know which is which. There's a lot of minerals in it. Does that make it soft or hard? I have no idea. I, I don't either. But it's yeah, it's always, always Yorkshire. I, I always know up north is usually harder water because of the amount of limestone in the water. I think that's what makes it hard uh-huh. and the calcium buildup or something like that. But I, I never know. I'm not a water technician i just know yorkshire tea is the best i'm not either no i mean i don't know why i said pg tips i think it's because it's ingrained in the psyche somehow but yeah it used to always be pg tips but now it's always yorkshire yeah well growing up it used to be for me pg tips or tetley's but then as soon as i discovered yorkshire tea it was like yeah tetley's that's an outlier i know tetley's is a good mild as well as a beer Mm. So, but you don't like ah, mild. Yes, you prefer lager. Shouldn't. Yeah, I'm a lager guy. So, ginger nuts with tea. I can imagine ginger nuts being quite strong. They're a strong dunker. They are, yeah, and they they go a bit chewy, which is nice. Oh, really fancy some ginger nuts now. I might go to the shop and yeah. get some. You know, so they don't you have to, they don't fall off into your cup. You know, if that you is, dunk a little bit too long. That's the issue with rich teas. I mean, I love rich teas. Oh, you got like under a second to get it in and get it out. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I think. No, with a ginger nut, you can linger. Exactly. You can actually even give it a bit of a wiggle inside to make sure it's absorbed. Always a wiggle. Always a wiggle. Yeah. All right. Always. Thanks for coming on, Balin. Is there anything else you want to add or anything you want to say to anybody? No. I mean, I feel like, you know, we, I feel like we've covered it. Um, I can't imagine that I have anything to add. Thanks for having me on. It's always a, uh, it's always good to catch up. Thank you for um, for having a chat. It's been and absolutely keep playing country music. It's been amazing talking to you. I mean, where can we find you on Twitter and Facebook? Oh, um, hey Balin at hey Balin on Instagram on Twitter. Hey, like you know, hi H E Y Balin, or just Balin on Facebook. Yeah, I need to spend more time on my social media. Um, you talk about I have so much energy. I think that, um, yeah, so many people are so much better at their social media game than I am. I feel like I need to step it up a little bit. You see, I go through waves. I go through, I'll yeah, do a lot of social media well. and then I'll like pull back a bit and then I'll do a lot more and then I'll pull back a bit. It's, I'm just tired. Of yeah, it takes a real dedication. I really admire people who like have made that a full, because that's like a full-time job that, you know, like I'm so... Like, yeah, I don't know. Good for them. Good for them. I'm too busy dunking, dunking ginger, nuts. ginger nuts and wiggling them around and hoovering my hoover. That, that, that's, that's what it's about in life. That's called living the dream. <laughs> yes. Well, great. Lovely. I'm here. I did it. Thank you. Made it in life. I'm I'm so yes. It's the little things in life. Awesome. So yeah, everybody you can catch Bale and Leonard on Country Hits Radio and 
that's at 10 o'clock till 1pm weekdays and on a Sunday for his front porch, that's 1pm to 3pm. Also, start looking at tickets for the Long Road Festival for next year. Yeah. That, yes. Let's get, let's get money back into country music and let's start pushing it. Lots of exciting things coming for the long road in 2021. I, I, I genuinely cannot wait. <laughs> is there anything you, is, we should be doing this in a few months, but um, I'm so excited for what's coming. Go on. Before, and when we're all back to normal and can hang out and, you know, drink beer together or yeah. Jack Daniels and hug and sing along to country music. I can't wait. That's what it's all about. I mean, I can't wait till this lockdown's done and to travel back down to London and see these amazing artists performing in natural habitats rather than on a camera yeah exactly all right buddy thank you for coming on and it was amazing talking to you look forward to speaking to you in the future when we get more thank information you, Dom. always a pleasure i'll see you soon take care everybody thank you for listening to our for now that was the Country Chat Podcast. Join Dom next time for exclusive interviews, reviews, and general chit chat on all things country music.